You are listening to episode 278 on University of Adversity. And despite what I could do at that point in time, we were so low with so few options. It was just, well, I, I don't know what I ever could have done any differently. What resulted was a horrific, horrific plane crash, as bad as it gets. And they cut me out of the wreckage and they flew me to hospital in a helicopter as the only survivor. So in a split second moment, everything had changed. And I, I can talk about it a million times, but I still can't get my head around what happened that morning. And just all the elements that, that bring it together, it was just horror. It was absolute hell. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to University of Adversity. You guys are in for a treat today. We have an awesome story something that we've never discussed on the show before. We have somebody that survived a plane crash. It's pretty incredible what he's been able to create and the message that he has for you guys today. And you guys, if you do get value from this, please leave us a review on Apple or share it with a friend. It's really, really appreciated. And wherever you're listening to this, whether it's Spotify, Apple, or whatever platform, subscribe to it and that means that the ep- you'll get the episodes automatically downloaded when they come out. So a little bit about today's guest. He's one of the newest and most exciting keynote speakers who landed in the U.S. He's the youngest person to fly solo around the world in a tiny plane at just 19 years old. He was an author at 20 and a paraplegic plane crash survivor at 21. He's the man behind Turbulence Tough the mindset required to navigate through and around life's roughest storms. His name is Ryan Campbell, and it's really an inspiring story. And what you guys will learn from this is just his sheer um, resilience in life and his determination. And he unpacks some real key points in his toolbox that he uses to get through and that he has used to get through these challenging moments in his life that you guys can walk away with feeling empowered. We could have talked for hours. Obviously, we only we only had an hour in this conversation, but I believe that with his story and the tools that he gives you guys, you'll learn a lot. I was really inspired by this. Not every not every day you get to hear about somebody who flew a plane around the world at such a young age, raised $250,000, was featured in all kinds of publications got to meet um, some of the royal family and then ends up in a plane crash and survives it. It's pretty insane. And we're going to unpack that whole story for you. So without further ado, Ryan Campbell. Here we go. Ryan Campbell, welcome to the show, brother. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, dude. Um, So like I was telling you before we were getting, before we hit record, I interview a lot of people, have a lot of amazing conversations and, you know, Once in a while, I come across a story like this. This is pretty unique. And I I got really excited because it's something that I've never never talked about before. And, you know, we talk about all things adversity, resilience, courage, all this stuff with different stories, but we've never unpacked a story like this. So I'm really excited. First of all, thanks so much for coming on. 
And um, yeah, man. So where I'd like to start, as I know you've probably told this story many times, but I would love if I can get into your mind, like if you had to go back to your childhood and you, you had to retell your story for the last time, you had to have, you had to, you wanted to make as much impact as possible to the people listening. If you had to go back and tell your story from what it was like for you growing up in Australia to how you discovered flying, what would that sound like? Well, man, uh, first off, yeah, I mean, thanks for having me. Uh, um, I love stories. It, it, it's what keeps me going. There's nothing better than sitting around a campfire and sharing, uh, you know, yarns as we would call it with uh, incredible individuals. There's so much to learn from them. So uh, super happy to be here and get a chance to share mine. Um, I'm just a typical Aussie dude, right? Any more laid back, I'd be lying down. That's what I tell everyone. I'm just a normal guy. My dad was a milkman. My mum was a stay-at-home mum. You know, there was nothing special about our family or who we were growing up. Uh, I, as you can tell from the accent, I'm not from here. I tell people West Texas, but you were uh, already given it away. So I did grow up in Australia. Uh, I grew up on the beach and uh, it, was, it was phenomenal. I had two older brothers and uh, just a, it was just a cool kind of like place to be. Uh, when I was six years old, my mum and dad had swung a bit of a deal with their work. And what that resulted in was a bunch of free tickets overseas uh, to a place called Vanuatu, an island in the Pacific Ocean. So my dad was the milkman and there was a, a little bit of a, uh, a deal that went on that said, if you sell a certain amount of juice products, like I'm like literally orange juice and apple juice, we're going to give you free tickets to this one week getaway uh, overseas. Now we'd never been overseas as young kids and my parents had never been overseas. So my mum and dad ordered bulk orange juice and apple juice with long life expiry dates on it and filled up all of our storage shed kind of, you know, area that we had at home with juice. Now they couldn't afford to buy the tickets overseas so it was buying this juice, getting the free trip and then selling the juice when we got back home that allowed us to go overseas for the very first time. So super clever parents. Uh, it was fantastic. We got onto that aeroplane to go to Vanuatu and being the youngest and I like to say the cutest, uh, I got the window seat. Six-year-old kids sitting in a Boeing 737. When that jet took off down that runway, when the nose pitched up, we kicked back in our seats. When we watched, uh, you know, the buildings get smaller and the clouds appear. When I could see the size of Sydney as a young kid, blown away at just how big the city was. All of these elements were what I think just allowed me to fall in love with flying. In that split second moment, six-year-old kid, I was just, I was in the most magical world, except it was real life. And from that day on, I just wanted to be a pilot. So six years old, man, I, I discovered my passion. And it's that passion that has brought about the absolute best experiences in my life. Just the most incredible, wild out there experiences, which we'll talk about. Just too wild for a normal Aussie kid to comprehend. But it's also that passion that's brought about the absolute worst experiences of my life. And it's truly made me who I am, no matter how you look at it. So I was six years old, wanted to be a pilot, went to Vanuatu, had a great trip. Uh, as I went through school, I knew that I wanted to learn to fly. But common sense had said to me that I needed two things to be able to fly an airplane. One was money. 
like that, it was going to be expensive. I was correct. The second was I thought I'd at least have to have a driver's license, right? I surely have to be able to drive a car before you can fly an airplane. That wasn't correct. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I remember sitting down uh, at this point, I thought, you know, I'm going to have to finish school and get a job. And, you know, before I could learn to fly, I remember sitting down at 14 years old and reading the local newspaper. In that uh, newspaper was an article on a kid who'd flown an airplane on his own for the very first time on his 15th birthday. So the day he turned 15, he's in an airplane in the sky on his own. I was jealous. Like to say I was jealous or envious would be an understatement. I read that article over and over again. Every time I got to his name, I'd replace it with my name in my head. I just wanted to do what he had done. So I took that, if he can do it, why can't I approach? And I went and found an after-school job uh, that turned out to not you know, provide me enough money. So I found a weekend job on top of that. And I saved up enough money every two weeks to have an hour's flying lesson. I had that goal to get in an airplane the day that I turned 15 and fly it on my own, just like he did. And that's exactly what I did. So for the very first time in my life, I chose a really big lofty goal. I pursued it with absolute passion and I was rewarded on my birthday to take off and land an airplane all by myself the day that I turned 15. Man, I was still two years away from being allowed to drive a car on my own and I'm flying this airplane. So 15 years old, I'm a pilot. That moment, it didn't just show me what I could do if I set lofty goals and just worked really hard, you know, just possessively to kind of, to, to make it happen. It made me want to do everything I possibly could at the youngest possible age. That sense of achievement of doing something the moment that I was legally allowed was just so fulfilling and addictive. So when I turned 16, I passed a flight test that allowed me to take my friends and family flying in the airplanes. So I was allowed to take passengers at this point in time. Man, I took my mum flying, my dad, my grandparents, I'm flying them around the sky at 16 years of age. But they still had to sit with me in the car to drive to and from the airport. I cut a deal with my schoolmates at this point in time. And that deal was, I can't drive a car yet on my own, but you, you can. So if you drive me from school, after school to the airport, I'll put you in the airplane and we'll go flying up and down the beach. We'll look at the whales and, and the dolphins and everything else. But you've got to drop me home afterwards, you know, because I don't want to walk. And that was a deal. So, man, like all through 16 years old, that whole year, we were just flying airplanes around having fun. When I turned 17, I passed my private pilot's license. When I turned 18, I passed my commercial pilot's license. So I had the equivalent of a college degree completed by the time I left high school. And I self-funded it all the way through without any debt. So, man, that put me, that was my aviation journey to, to, from nothing, from a dreamer at six years old through to a licensed commercial pilot ready to go to work. My life really changed, however, around about that 17-year-old kind of age where I loved what I was doing in my flight training, but I knew that I wanted more. I was always a kid who uh, read books and watched movies and, and was so inspired and encouraged by the incredible individuals who went out and, you know, adventurers and the pioneering aviators uh, of the early years, those people who pushed the limits, you know, not just of whatever they were in, but themselves. And they did incredible things because of that. I was so inspired by those people, even though it was probably 2011 at this point. And it's kind of hard to really 
find any new adventures or records to break or whatever at this point in modern time. I knew I wanted to do something bigger than just learn to fly. I read an article again about a young kid, uh, an American man by the name of Barrington Irving, who'd flown solo around the world in a tiny single engine aeroplane. And he'd broken the world record by doing so and become the youngest person who've ever done it. He was 23 years old. The record prior to Barrington's flight was 37. So there really wasn't an age record at that point. So we'd gone from 37 to 23. Here I am, 17 years old, not real good at math, but still smart enough to work out. I've got six years. If this was something I was to pursue, I've got six years to make it happen and break that record. I decided to take it on. You know, what bigger, crazier challenge was there than getting into this single engine airplane that I could now fly and taking it all the way around the globe on my own? What do you do at 17 years old when you're just this wannabe adventurer, right? You're just a normal kid from a normal family. Yes, you've learned to fly and you worked really hard to make that happen, but how do you even begin to get such a large project off the ground? Well, I kept it a secret. I didn't tell my mum, my dad, my brothers, my best friends. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't want anyone knowing that I was even thinking about pursuing something so crazy. Uh, I ended up Googling it instead. So I Googled, how do you fly around the world solo? This is the way that a modern day adventurer, uh, you know, uh, tackles the challenge. But I Googled, how do you fly around the world solo? And I found a website called earthrounders.com with a whole bunch of information on it. Once I'd read all of the information online, I actually printed it off and I went through and highlighted all the, you know, the important parts and I went and placed it in the third drawer down at my office desk in my room, in my bedroom. I really didn't want anyone to find it. I was hiding this, this information. But as I read those articles over and over again and as I Googled basically everything there was to Google about flying solo around the world, keeping in mind that at this point, more people have gone to space and flown solo around the world, right? Like it's not a common thing to do. Once I got to the point where I'd really digested all the readily available information, I found myself still wanting more, right? I still wanted to pursue this. I still wanted to take the next step. So I decided to contact one of Australia's most famous adventurers, aviation adventurers, around the world pilots, businessmen, entrepreneur. He's just an incredible household name of a human, a guy by the name of Dick Smith. I decided to contact Dick Smith and I thought he's got a lot of connections. He's got a lot of money, to be honest. Uh, He's done this before and he might be interested in this idea of me wanting to break the record as an Aussie kid. Again, at 17 years old, how do you contact one of the most famous people in Australia, right? I Googled Dick Smith's email address and he hates me telling anyone, but I Googled Dick Smith's email address. I found five and I sent an email to all five. Not only did Dick reply to me as a 17-year-old wannabe adventurer, but he told me that it could be done. Now, he told me a whole bunch of other things, like it's dangerous, it's expensive, it's never been done before, this is a huge challenge. But right at the end of that email, he said those words, but it can be done. So being a lazy teenager, I took the same email that I wrote Dick to Dick and I crossed out Dear Dick, I wrote Dear Ken, and I sent it to a guy named Ken who'd also flown around the world with a buddy in a small aeroplane. Ken agreed to be my mentor. I went back to Dick Smith and said, hey, Dick, you know, I've now got a mentor. He decided to jump on my team. All of a sudden, I'm a 17-year-old kid with two incredible individuals backing me uh, for this idea of flying solo around the world, and I hadn't even told my parents. So long story short, from that point on, uh, I sat down with my parents one night. Uh, I actually finished 
washing the dishes, which I think helped. And uh, I looked at my dad and I looked at my mom and I, I threw this idea out there of wanting to fly solo around the world. And their first response is, we would see some incredible things and it would be, it'd be a whole lot of fun. They, they really just thought this was another big idea. But when I sat that folder of emails down in front of them from a gentleman who they had grown up watching in the media and on TV, they realised this was a bigger thing than just a dream. And man, from that point on, best parents in the whole wide world. We spent two years fundraising a quarter of a million dollars, uh, renting a single engine aeroplane. You think it's hard to rent a car at an airport at you know, 19, 20, 22, try rent an aeroplane uh, at 19 to fly it solo around the world. Two years of planning, fundraising a quarter million dollars on a laptop computer, preparing and training as a pilot, uh, modifying that aircraft. I found myself in a position at 19 years of age to uh, climb in it, take off and attempt to fly 24,000 miles solo around the world. So. Let's, let's pause there for a sec. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around a 17-year-old being able to even think about something like that. Like I always, when somebody tells me a story or tells me their story about their life, I always, I always think back to myself at 17 and I think about just where I was at and how the capacity to think of something like that and the people around me and it just would have been so crazy. And where I want to, what I kind of want to unpack is like, how did you learn all these, like, where did you learn these skills so young? Your parents obviously raised you well, you know, how, like, yeah. what are some of the things that they taught you? Because like, this is crazy, man. Like, let's just (laughs) call it as it is like to have that drive, to have that vision, to do something that crazy at that age is just not something that happens normally so like that's pretty special um, i don't know i you know i really don't want to turn around and say that i was brought up any different to anyone else because mm. i don't think i was you know i had a really strong family around me but i didn't have any adventurers in my family i didn't have anyone who pushed the limits and done anything wild and insane i didn't have anyone who'd been in the media i did and i grew up in a normal Aussie family my dad was a milkman you know and i think i just always wanted more you know, they encourage like, oh, you all the time though? Did they push like, you know, cause some parents, yeah. people don't encourage kids as much, you know, and they, it kind of limits them a lot. Yeah. And I think my parents had this perfect balance. I mean, I think they're the best parents in the world, but I think they had the perfect balance of give and request. So if we wanted to pursue something, it didn't, didn't matter what it is. For example, we went on a trip when we were young to America and it was a month long trip around America. So very expensive for our family to do. Mm-hmm. We had to contribute. We didn't have to pay our, our entire way on that trip, but we had to save up our pocket money and we had to contribute, right? We had to buy the airfare, I think, to get here and then they covered the RV and the adventures that we went on. So mum and dad always had this perfect, like you go to work for it, but your work will be rewarded attitude. Um, mm. But man, I did not grow up in a family that was any different. Am I different on the inside, always wanting more? Yeah, I mean, maybe that's what, I mean, we'll talk about the rest of the story, but maybe... I, and it's not maybe, it is what has led me to the US doing what I'm doing now. Like, And I don't just wake up in the morning and live a normal day. I have all these aspirations and ideas in my head of things that I want to do. And um, I've just always been wired like that. I, I remember mm-hmm. when I was really young, like eight years old, wanting, this was back in the day where I had a disc, right, that I took to school. 
And that's what I would listen to my music on. I remember wanting this yellow and black Discman case. And it was a little bag and it had you know space for like six CDs. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. It was $8. $8. I remember that clear as day. Back then, that seemed like a lot of money, right? Mum and dad, I, I remember getting up before school 15 minutes early and unpacking the dishwasher every day for how it might have been two weeks or a week or whatever. And mum bought it for me. So I always remember that want for things. And I've always been the person, good or bad, when I know I want something, I'm just a million miles now. If I want to get into fishing, man, I'm watching every YouTube fishing video mm. there is. I'm just like all in or not in at all. And um, maybe that was a real big part of it. Aviation's been something that throughout my life I'm so passionate about it. I've always been all in. That's what I find interesting. And that's what I, I always love discovering with people is that there has to be that thing that drives you and, and allows you to really dive into something because there's so many reasons not to do things, you know, like because nobody else is doing anything special. It's so easy to not take the chance and do things that you actually want to do. Yeah. That's why it's so cool to hear a story of somebody young and their family gets behind them and actually does something that they want to do. It doesn't happen enough. You know, it like doesn't. And it, it's, it's really one of these things that like people just say, ah, it can't be done. Let's just let yeah. somebody else do it. You know, let me tell you a real quick story about that. I remember sitting uh, on a, I would call it a, a veranda, but a, a patio or a deck of a, a high rise apartment building in uh, Queensland, Australia, looking over the water. And I was with a friend of mine. I was, I was actually flying his air. He's a grown man, married with kids. He's an engineer, very intelligent. He bought an airplane and he didn't have the pilot's license to fly it. So here I am at like 17 years old flying him around in his $400,000 airplane because I had a pilot's license and wanted to build ours. So I'm kind of being his chauffeur. We ended up sitting on the deck of this apartment and I'm holding a book and it was the book on the life of Charles Lindbergh, right? One of the most famous aviation pioneers in the world. And we started to talk about Lindbergh and I told Andrew that I would love to do something this is way back, you know, with the idea of the round the world flight is still kind of in my head from that article. I said to him, I'd love to do something like what Lindbergh did. I can't do what he did because we live in a different time, but I want to channel that same pioneering spirit that he had in my life in some form of adventure. And, and he said to me, well, like what? And I said, well, maybe like flying around the world. It's the first time those words had come out of my mouth to a human other than, you know, Dick Smith and Ken Evers. And he said, well, why don't you? Man, I was almost taken back because I didn't know what it was going to take to fly solo around the board. I had no idea at that point, but I, I knew at least that it was going to be really, really hard, right? It wasn't just pack a sandwich, jump in an airplane, take off and, and head over the Pacific Ocean. It was, it was a big challenge, right? And he said, why don't you do it in just such a casual way that it kind of made me feel like he was downplaying it. And I said, well, and I started to rattle off all the reasons I couldn't do it, right? Normal kid normal kid. I was like, I don't have the yeah. money. I don't have the experience. I don't have the wisdom. And I just rattled off all of these different excuses. And he's just sat and he listened the whole time. At the end of it, he just smiled. When I was finished, he smiled. And he knew he was about to teach a 17-year-old kid a lesson. Man, what he did in that moment, mm -hmm. he did not provide me the solutions to any of my problems. No, not one solution. But he provided me the next step. So when I talked about not having the money, he talked about corporate sponsorship, 
the ability to go to a company, present them a proposal, and then provide them exposure or, or whatever it may be in return for money, goods and services. And he explained that basic model to me, right? It's not rocket science, but to a 17 year old kid, it kind of, kind of is. He yeah. explained how to pursue those companies, right? He, he gave me the next step. When I talked about not knowing how to fly solo around the world, he talked about the importance of finding a mentor and pulling that person in, somebody who's invested in your idea, who, who wants to help you on your journey. That was how I was going to learn how to do it. So he provided all these next steps. Hmm. What he did by doing that is he placed a ball in my court and he gave me the racket and he said, no more excuses. If you really truly want this, hmm. not like the modern day era we live in where a lot of people want things, but they want it for the wrong reason. They want it for fame or exposure or, you know, they want to fly around the world because you get a free $7,000 watch and you get to be on TV and meet the Royals. I was doing it for the right reason. But what he was, Andrew had given me an opportunity to prove that. Mm. And he told me what the next thing I needed to do was. Mm. So I went out and I tackled those next steps. And you know what comes after a next step? Man, it's another next step. You know, and that happens all the way through in life. Yeah. And Andrew taught me an incredible, incredible uh, lesson. And I tell everyone, he taught me that all you truly need to pursue something great and seemingly impossible is courage and commitment. Right? It's the courage to take it on and the commitment to see it through. Everything else will fall into place if you're doing it with courage and with commitment. And um, in that day, it changed my life. So, you hear that, everybody? It's all about taking those just those first steps. You don't have to have all of the answers, but the first steps and breaking it down. And absolutely, man, that is it's so true. And that is where people get lost. That is where is where okay, and this is this just goes for everything in life. You have a big goal, people get lost in the huge goal and yeah. they don't focus on what they can control as each step. Yeah, and, and that's a perfect segue because the story, as you know, so yeah. long we'll be here for we'll be here until dinner time. But yeah. um the the flight around the world, right? Yeah. It took two years to get to a position where we could even depart. Now we're sitting in a single engine airplane at 19 years of age. And I say we all the time because it's such a team effort. Uh, but I was the only person in the airplane. It was myself and Bob the Lifer mm. strapped to the seat next to me. But um, at 19 years old, I'm sitting in that airplane, TV cameras around with 60 minutes and, and different people. A lot of people know about this. This is a big deal. Mm. I had no idea whether I could even pull it off. But I was forced at 19 years of age because of my own doing to, to take off and point that airplane over the Pacific Ocean and give it the best crack that I could. Hmm. Over 70 days, we flew 24,000 nautical miles to 35 stops in 15 countries, all the way across the Pacific Ocean, island hopping in a single engine airplane across uh, North America, up through the world's biggest air show into Canada, over the North Atlantic, up over the tip of Greenland into to Iceland, down into Scotland. England, France, Greece, diverted around Egypt due to crisis, ended up uh, around Iraqi airspace, descending over the, the Red Sea, which I tell everyone is very blue, and landing in Aqaba, Jordan, and then from Jordan, nine hours of Saudi Arabia uh, before we landed in Oman, and then uh, you know, ocean crossing over the uh, real pirate-infested uh, pirate waters, landing in Sri Lanka, and then across to Malaysia, Indonesia, back into the west coast of Australia, and back across uh, my own country. For the very first time in my life, I got to see my own country from uh, a little aeroplane. Now, that trip had all the highs and the lows that you could imagine a good adventure would have, right? Icing on the, uh, ice forming on the aircraft over the North Atlantic in minus 90 degree temperatures and 
65,000 foot thunderstorms in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, you know, five hours of refueling and all these arguments and, and red tape and airspace issues in, in Jakarta, Indonesia. And, you know, we could talk all day about just around the world flight. But what mattered was that that wasn't an, an around the world flight. It happened to be 34 or five A to B legs, right? A to B legs that happened to join and connect the dots all the way around the globe, creating one really long A to A flight. But if I had have taken off on that day one, unsure whether I could even do this, and I had have looked at the challenge as a 24,000 mile challenge that was going to take me 70 days, I would have crumbled on day one, two or three. You know, and I put myself in this position where I was feeling the stress and it was only by breaking it up into one step at a time that it become, you know, bite-sized chunks and it become, you know, somewhat achievable. And that was the secret, not only to succeeding with the round-the-world flight adventure, but in all the challenges that come after that. Yeah. So, okay, you managed to do that. You flew around, you learned a lot. And then that's where... Uh... That's where the challenge started, right? That's where the, the real, yeah. <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah, hi, man. I, yeah. I'm still, it's, yeah. I would love to hear, man, because like, that's, it's pretty insane. Yeah. So I was a, I was a 19 year old kid, still a normal Aussie kid. I had finished around the world flight. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of success in the media and, and different areas. The flight had story. The flight had traveled a long way. We, we impacted and affected a lot of people. Yeah, in really positive ways. Young kids all the way through to, you know, World War II ex fighter pilots who wrote handwritten letters. You know, it was it was incredible. Mm. Uh, I was on this high. It was a cloud nine. Um, named one of Australia's fifty greatest explorers, and That's you know, crazy. like met Prince William and then met Prince Harry at, at a different really? event. And yeah, like just a random phone call. Hey, Ryan, it's so-and-so from the office of the governor general. Would you like to meet Prince William? And it was actually the Duke and Duchess of, I think Cambridge or Sussex. And I remember thinking, who is that? And I had to Google it afterwards after I already said, yes, I'd go to the event because you know, why wouldn't you? And I wound up standing in a very expensive suit that I just spent all my money on um, shaking hands and having a five minute conversation about adventure and aviation with Prince William. And I mean, like that's the moment in life when you realize that, you're this is unique like this isn't the normal road through life you know when you're standing there talking to a royal but you know that you're still a normal Aussie kid and true to yourself when like i didn't want to eat any of the food at that reception with prince william right it was all green and caviar it was like the strangest food you've ever seen in your life i kid you not i left that event i got in my car that still had my provisional learner plate stuck to it in australia and i drove to kfc so i'm in this suit where i just met the royals but I'm sitting in KFC eating some fried chicken at 11.30 at night while they clean the floors beneath my feet. And it's those little moments, not meeting the Royals, but ending up in KFC afterwards that made me realise that I'm still just that normal kid on a wild, wild journey. So, man, life is good. We uh, published a book called Born to Fly. All these things are happening. I jumped on the Australian speaking circuit and I pursued my career as a pilot ongoing. Um, on the 28th of December, 2015, that's when it all changed. So we're just over two years after the end of the round of the flight. At this point, I'm 21, just about to turn 22 years old. I was flying a vintage 1930s biplane, open cockpit, two-seat, old, old airplane. And my job was beautiful machine. My job was to take off with one person at a time on board, fly up and down the beach of Australia and do some aerobatics. 
if they want to go upside down, we go upside down and we come in and we land. It was a very simple job, but it was a very enjoyable, fun job. And I was just loving life. A gentleman and I, that morning on the 28th of December, climbed into the aeroplane, went down to the end of the runway and I lined up on the centre line and I pushed the power forward to take off just like any other day. There was no oceans to cross, no records to break. I was just another day at work. We lifted off the ground, the end of the runway, the fence disappeared beneath the nose of the aeroplane as soon as that happened, the engine stopped. And we're at an incredibly low level above all sorts of terrain in an open cockpit aeroplane and within three or four seconds, it was all over. And despite what I could do at that point in time, we were so low with so few options. It was just, well, I, I don't know what I ever could have done any differently. What resulted was a horrific, horrific plane crash, as bad as it gets. And they cut me out of the wreckage and they flew me to hospital in a helicopter as the only survivor. So in a split second moment, everything had changed. And I, I can talk about it a million times, but I still can't get my head around what happened that morning and just all the elements that, that bring it together. It was just horror. It was absolute hell. They took me to hospital. They operated on me straight away. I had uh, shattered facial bones, so they put titanium in there. I had five breaks in my back. They put titanium in there and my right ankle was basically removed. So they bolted all that back together. I had broken fingers and cuts and bruises all over me. I was so unbelievably lucky to be alive. They put me, I woke up in a recovery ward uh, and I realized that even after all those surgeries, there was a bigger problem. And I felt like the bottom half of my body was under a concrete block nailed to the bed. No matter how hard I tried to move my legs, I couldn't move my legs. So I was diagnosed a complete paraplegic, a spinal cord injury. So at L1, around about your waistline down, I had no movement, no feeling. It was, that was uh, the, the uh, diagnosis. I don't, as I said, I, I just don't know how to compute what happened over those few days. And I spent the next almost six months in hospital and I spent a year and a half in rehabilitation. And it was the biggest challenge I've ever faced in my life. You know, it, it trumped flying around the world 10 times over. We, uh, I had a wheelchair built for me. It was purple and uh, all the reason I needed to get out of it. And every single day in hospital, I was at work. I had a roster, just like at school, a timetable that said when I had to be in the rehabilitation gym, when I had to go and talk to the psychologist, when I had to go and learn about how to basically live life with a permanent disability, you know, whether that be your legs not moving or all the unknown items like, you know, your bladder and everything internally just goes away. It's, it's gone. It'll never come back for me. Uh, I had to learn. It was all about education. It was all about rehabilitation. It was all about trying to find my way back to the very best state that I could be in physically and mentally so that I could rebuild my life. Learning to walk again was a mental challenge. It was not a physical challenge. If I can sit here and tell you that learning to walk again was a mental challenge, that really speaks to how important it is for us all. And this is my day job now, is how it's so important for us all to, to work on our personal development, our mindset, our attitude toward life. And I mean, that time in hospital rehabilitation and every moment since that accident has been, that's, that's my new passion, is, is trying to, to unpack and discover what makes us tick. Man, 
21 years old, I had gone from shaking hands with Royals to being laid out in a spinal rehabilitation ward, being told I'd never walk again. I'd experienced like the highest of the highs as a normal kid, like incredible highs. But I'd now experienced incredible lows, highs higher than the average human would ever experience and then lows lower than the average human would ever experience. And, man, I did not see this at the time, but that is an opportunity. Mm. It's an opportunity to compare, right? It's an opportunity to look at those two different uh, experiences in life and, you know, of which we all have, we all have highs and lows and ask the question of where do we truly learn? Like, is to the highs, what makes us great? What makes us the person that we're proud to be? And for me, it was the resilience. It was the low. It was the adversity. It was, as I call it, the turbulence. And becoming turbulence tough, finding the right tools, ways of thinking, mindsets, tips and tricks to allow myself to build back up is, you know, this secret source to living, I believe, an incredible life. So, oh, man, I just there's such a there's so much to it you know we yeah i just yeah i mean far away yeah i want to ask you a quick question so all right so you're being told you can't walk your bodily functions aren't going to come back and all this okay so you're being told that how long did you sit in that position of accepting that that's the truth before you're like fuck this i'm gonna come back like i'm not gonna let this divine define me no i never did Mm. i never ever did and and Mm. maybe the word is naive or stupid or uneducated i don't know um but you know what i i did not struggle with that devil until my recovery plateaued And that took a good probably year and a half. So whilst ever I could see progress, and one of the things I truly believe in and push everywhere is that uh, progress is the antidote to change-induced stress, right? So progress is the antidote to change-induced stress. Man, when things change, we all want to avoid it. When things change, life gets hard. This year's been a perfect example. It creates stress and anxiety and depression and fear and worry and but progress is the antidote to that. Mm. We have to be seeing progress every day for us to be able to find reason as to get up tomorrow and repeat the process. And whilst ever I was in spinal rehabilitation, whilst ever I was seeing that my exercise and work physically was paying off and being rewarded in the way of extra movement and my body waking back up, I was happy to go to the gym. So from a physical standpoint, that's easy. I could easily gauge day to day so there's never a time where you're there was never a time where you're like oh this is like you were just like no i'm gonna come no i just like dude that's amazing though there's amazing not everybody's gonna that's the thing that's the point that is is what i find so interesting and you can tell by what you've been able to create in your life you've been able to say that that is not going to be that's not going to define you or anything you're in but some most would say, okay, this is my life now. And I saw it, man. I was surrounded by quadriplegics and paraplegics. We we lived together for five and a half months. And man, my biggest lesson of life come from a quadriplegic gentleman. And we'll talk about that. But, you know, 
this was sure like naive all of that stuff yeah okay but you know we have to concentrate on what we can control it doesn't yeah. matter whether it's in a positive or a negative light we have to start asking ourselves what our maximum potential is right so mm. right now i'm walking i walk very slow i look like i've had too many whiskeys right if i go out for a walk in the morning to get some exercise and i go as fast as i can like dude it's not even a fast walk it's this clunky like you know, robot kind of get along. If I go out in the morning and I go as hard as I can, right, I'm giving it my all. And you go out very healthy and you just jog past me, right? You're out for a morning casual jog. You beat me to the end of the sidewalk, but I am operating closer to my maximum potential than you are, mm. right? Like we have to stop kind of like looking outside and and gauging our success off somebody else's potential or ability. We have to start looking inside and saying, well, where's my cap at? And, you know, what's my maximum potential? What can I do to get closer to it? And that's what spinal rehabilitation was. Like, we're all different. You know, there's a guy next to me who's a quadriplegic, can't move anything in his body from his chest down. Yeah. But I saw quadriplegics with better mindsets than paraplegics who were walking, incomplete paraplegics who were walking. And, you know, it just the mind is life is one and lost above the shoulders. I say it all the time. And yeah. we have to understand that we have to run our own race. You can look outside of your little world for inspiration and, you know, uh, definitely perspective and all of that good stuff. But you have to, at the end of the day, come back into your little battle that we're all, you know, kind of fighting you know, at any given day and ask ourselves what we can do to make ourselves you know, at our maximum potential and just better in general. Yeah. That's what Spinal Ward was. I never gave up. I never, until that 18-month mark when my body started to plateau and I looked at this and went, oh, this is it, right? Then I had a little bit of a, a moment where I had to accept what my body uh, was capable of and that that was my maximum potential. Hmm. And that was a hard time, you know, but uh, also a very important moment for me of discovery of, of you know, really kind of rediscovering and redefining who I was and what I was capable of. And then, you know, I sat back and looked at that and went, all right, this is what I can do. Like, let's focus on what I can do and not what I can't do. And, and let's create an incredible life hmm. ongoing, which led to, I mean, I'll run over it real quick, but it led to flying airplanes again and, and learning to fly helicopters as an incomplete paraplegic and doing all this cool stuff within my realm of, of possibility instead of sitting there and going, well, I can't water ski anymore. I can't fly 95% of airplanes anymore. Or I can't go to the bathroom anymore or all that stuff. You know, I was focusing on what we could change as opposed to, you know, mm. being sad and dwelling on, on what I'd lost. Well, and most would be scared to fly again. Like it's a scary thing. That's traumatizing. Like, and that's kind of what I yeah. wanted to ask you as well is like, you know, loss of people, you know, is, is a hard thing in itself. Right. Like, never mind rebuilding your body and all that, but like going through that, like how have you dealt with, with that? I mean, that's traumatizing as it is in its own right. I have dealt with it to a point, but I'll never ever yeah. truly deal with it. it. It's not something that'll ever go away. Um, I had to spend a lot of time in the very beginning pulling apart what happened on that morning and whether or not, I could have done anything different. You know, if, if I had have left a fuel cap off or if, if I had have done something wrong, you know, that was outside of my training and my expertise and what I, what I was there to do, then I know I could never have lived with myself and I'm not sure what path that would have taken me on. 
but I knew in my heart of hearts that I did everything I possibly could in that scenario. And, you know, if the engine had a failed 10 seconds earlier or 20 seconds later, we would have been in a completely different situation. But that's not how that day unfolded. And it was coming to terms with that that allowed me to sit back and say, you know what, you know, it'll never go away, it'll never stop hurting, but I need to, you know, start looking forward and, and tackling that next challenge. And so there is a part of me that's broken and hurt and missing and will always be that way. Um, but, man, like, what do you do? You know, I, I remember sitting, we could just talk all day, I remember sitting one day uh, in my wheelchair at a cafe near the hospital uh, in Sydney and I had a friend who I'd met through the Round the World Flight Adventure Days come down and sit with me and have breakfast. His name's Paul de Gelder. You need to have him on this podcast. He's incredible. Uh, was diving as a Navy clearance diver in Sydney Harbour when a, a shark attacked him. He lost his arm and his leg. Wow. Now, he's the fittest guy you've ever seen in your life. Now, if you're listening to the audio, I'm not the fittest guy you've ever seen in your life. You know, I've always struggled with that. This guy has lost his arm, lost his leg, and he has built a life ongoing that is just incredible. He's a shark advocate. He's so fit. He's so driven. He's just phenomenal. I mean, he sat down that day with me and he said three words that changed everything. Now, keep me in mind that I've been given advice at this point by every psychologist under the sun, doctors, you know, family members, nurses, uh, an ex-Australian Wallabies national football coach, mm. like all these unbelievable humans. And he said three words that changed everything, and that was sink or swim. And I knew at that point that, like, I'm looking at a guy who, who legitimately one day chose to swim. Now, I'd heard sink or swim before. That's kind of common. But when you put it in the context of Paul, mm. that was the kick in the pants that I needed. Yeah. And I remember at that point going, I have to swim. Because sink is just this slippery slope. I hate to say it, but on a really downhill path to things that end up, you know, suicide. Yeah. You know, all of these, it just is, you know, I'm really honest and blunt about that. So I, I knew I had to swim. And I remember going to my mom after that and sitting down with her and, and saying, mom, I think I worked out how I'm going to get through this. And, you know, mums like to hear that when their kids are in hospital and learning to walk again. And I said, I really think I've worked it out. And she said, how are you going to do it? I said, I'm going to toughen up. And that was it. Like, I'm just going to toughen the hell up is what I said. And I think she was, kind of looked at me and went, oh, oh, that wasn't the breakthrough I was hoping for, but that's what it took. You know, life is rough. Adversity is a byproduct of breathing. You know, you might not experience adversity on the uh, scale of a plane crash or learning to walk again, but we all experience it, right? If you're an, uh, a six-year-old kid and you fall over and graze your knee, that's the same feeling, the same struggle that I had learning to walk again. Adversity is not a competition. What's common, however, is the tools and the way of thinking that we can apply to overcome it, to climb the mountain ahead of us, you know, to get back to the life that we all want to live where we, you know, laugh and, and love and share and, and, you know, all that good stuff. Mm. Um, it poured together to change everything for me that day. Mm. And, you know, I'm so glad for all those people in my life who provided me the tools that allowed me to, you know, transform myself and therefore my recovery and, and build a life now where I get to share that with other people. It's dude, it's so inspiring and it's amazing when we meet people at the right time and they say the right thing. It's uh it's and it's what we need. It's not always what we want, but it's what we need. It's you know and yeah it's it's crazy man. And uh and it's so different for everybody. 
So what I would love to kind of just talk about here before we wind up the round up the end here. Um, when you are in your darkest spot, like let's say when we all get there, we, we start to doubt ourselves. We start to think this or that to different levels. Some don't let themselves go too deep. Some do. What are some real thing, like some tactical things or, um, you know, routines or mindset drills that you work on that really help you when you're in that dark place? Let me tell you the basis of my way of thinking. What I speak about now as a speaker here in the US and, and what I really believe we're all missing. Resiliency is found not in the tools that we acquire, but in the place that we store them, right? We have tools. And if you can't see me, I'm holding up my phone, right? We have tools at our fingertips beyond belief. Videos, everything, Instagram posts, you know, lectures, documentaries, movies, you know, and that's just in our phone. We have tools at our disposal, as many as we want. If it was just tools that allowed us to overcome the greatest of adversity, then we'd all be the most resilient humans in the whole wide world. The problem is we have access to the tools, but we, we don't have a place to store them. When I was uh, first taken to the spinal rehabilitation gym in hospital, the first time I was ever out of my bed, they put me in a wheelchair and they took me down to this gym. That was a place where quadriplegics and paraplegics were doing everything they could to bring their, their bodies back to life. They lifted me up out of this wheelchair and they laid me down on a bed and they said, today's first challenge, my physiotherapist told me, was to, to learn to roll over. And I remember loving a challenge. Like, I thought, okay, if I could just pick up one of my lifeless, chunky legs and put it over the other leg, I could twist the bottom half of my body, I could lean over, I could grab the side of this bed and pull with my arms and I would end up lying on my stomach and victor you know, victorious. And I remember pulling with my legs twisted, I remember pulling and the fibrates in my back, they were just... The pain was so immense that I froze halfway through uh, this maneuver of rolling over. So I'm laying on my side, my right arm is all twisted. And I remember looking through a gap under my elbow that my twisted arm had made. And what I saw through that gap changed my life. I saw a guy called Ben. He was in his early thirties. He, he uh, had slipped over mopping his girlfriend's floor, hit his head, broken his neck, no movement or feeling below his chest, very little movement in his arms or his hands. Ben was a quadriplegic, early thirties. And I remember looking up at Ben and seeing him look back at me. Now, here I was feeling sorry for myself. Life was hard. You know, I had so many things to be frustrated and sad about and depressed about. But when I looked up at Ben, he didn't even have to tell me. But I realized by looking in his eyes what he would have given for just one chance at rolling over at what I was being given the opportunity to do. And I felt like the worst human on the face of the planet. And then they put me back in that wheelchair and they took me back to bed. And that night, my, my mind is just racing. My body's resting, but my mind is going a million miles an hour. I knew in that moment, it was how I felt looking at Ben that I would need to remember when I was having a bad day. And I knew there were plenty of bad days on the horizon. I couldn't even really tell you how I felt in that moment, but I knew it was just that moment that I needed to be able to remember and retain I created that night in my head something called the mindset toolbox, right? My belief is that we're all born with the toolbox when we're young kids, right? It's uh, mine's yellow, it's big, it has drawers, wheels, we take it with us wherever we go in life. The aim throughout our life should be to take those easily forgettable moments, unpack them, you use that word earlier on, unpack them into tools and place those tools into that mindset toolbox, into an unforgettable drawer that we have access to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
by taking these easily forgettable moments and placing them in an unforgettable draw in the form of tools, we can then draw on those tools when we're having a bad day. It's exactly what I needed to do with that moment from Ben. When I unpacked the Ben moment that night, I realized that, yes, on the surface, he taught me perspective, but if I really dove into it, he had taught me to focus on what I had remaining as opposed to what I'd lost, on the opportunity as opposed to the adversity, all of these different tools. I placed him in that toolbox. From that moment on, every uh, moment like that, every conversation, every Facebook uh, post or every YouTube video, I unpacked those tools and I placed them in that mindset toolbox. I went back into my previous life of flying around the world and I took all the moments I'd learned and, and experienced and I unpacked those moments, realizing that most of what I'd experienced in my past hadn't been unpacked properly. And I'd learned surface level tools, but I truly hadn't pulled away what I really could have learned from those moments. And, man, I had this overflowing mindset toolbox. It was incredible. And I pushed that mindset toolbox as a foundational way to measure tangible growth above our shoulders, right? We talked about being in the gym and seeing your body transform or, you know, a twitch of a muscle or, you know, a flicker of a toe as I learned to, you know, stand up and then walk and then go on to learn to fly and all that stuff again. But that was easy. I couldn't go to a psychologist. I couldn't have conversations or experience moments like Ben, I had nowhere to put all of these moments or, or, or tools and I was, I, I was overwhelmed. There was no tangible way to measure my growth in my head and, and that's where it was most important at that point in time to be growing you know, myself. So the mindset tool has become something that I now live by. It's my foundation to do something, to, to store and to provide order, um, to provide uh, some kind of, you know, conformity to the chaos and uh, put my life lessons in. Your question, this is a long roundabout way to answer it, but your question is what do I use on a day-to-day -day basis when I have a bad day? I use my three favourite tools. When I built that toolbox and filled it up, I was so lucky to have such a full toolbox, so many incredible individuals and life experiences to be able to fill it. But even in a moment of change, even in a dark day, even in a struggle, with that full, I didn't know which tool just to pull out of it in that moment. Like when we're struggling, we're not thinking straight. You know, we're overwhelmed. We're scared. You know, we just, it's just not easy to reach into an even full toolbox and pull out the right tool. So I took my three favorite tools, gratitude, confidence, and resilience. They are what pulled me through. And I created the three-step checklist in navigating change. Why a checklist? Because as a pilot, I grew up using a checklist. Right. You know, a checklist is such a systemized, systematic, proven approach to overcoming a problem in an airplane. You know, when that red light flashes or the warning buzzer sounds, we don't just start pulling random levers and pushing random buttons. There is a system in place. You pull out the checklist, you go to the right page, depending on what problem you're facing, you work through the checklist. Mm. Once you get to the end of that checklist, you don't skip any items, you do them all in order. Hopefully you've found a solution. I created a checklist not for an aeroplane but for everyday life struggles and that was the three-step checklist to navigating change, gratitude, confidence and resilience. That quick two-minute checklist is what I use when I have a bad day. Mm. You can create whatever checklist, system, procedure, way of thinking you want and this is what we do for organisations. We help you create your own checklist that fits the needs and solves your problems but you've got to have that foundation of the mindset toolbox behind you first. Mm. 
So I want people to find their toolbox. You've all got one, pull it out of your, out of your attic and dust it off, start to fill it with tools from today onwards, start to unpack prior life moments, fill that toolbox up. They are the tools that allow you to, to navigate change, challenge, crisis and adversity. Once you've done that, start to look at your day-to-day challenges, start to look at the tools you have and, and come up with little systems that uh, you can apply in a split second moment, a proven, you don't have to think about it, you just pull it out and you apply it. Man, gratitude, confidence, and resilience. And we've been on this for an hour, so I don't want to keep dragging it on too far. But, you know, when we unpack gratitude, confidence, and resilience, it's so incredibly powerful uh, to provide you, uh, to put you in a more change and challenge ready mindset at any given time of any given day. Mm, love it, man. That's so important. Gratitude has been like the number one thing for me that's completely changed my life and my perspective. And yeah, like, and that's what Ben taught me, man. I, yeah, you know, that moment looking in Ben's eyes and, and everything that was, you know, learned from that moment at, at, at its absolute core. I was lucky to be a paraplegic. Mm. You know, do you ever think you'd end up in a position where you would say that you're lucky to be a paraplegic? I, I sure didn't. And mm. you know, inspiring, that was gratitude man. in its most powerful kind of form. So, Very you know, we always have something to be thankful for. So. So where can everybody check you out and find out more about you if they want to uh, they want to get involved in anything that you're up to? Yeah, so we're on all the socials at Ryan Campbell Speaking. And um, the website is www.ryancampbell.co. Uh, it's .co. It's not .com. I always tell people I can't afford the M yet. So it's ryancampbell.co. Um, jump on there, shoot us an email, reach out on socials, and we'd love to chat. Dude, thank you so much for sharing. This is such a, and, and you know, like it's, it's such a good lesson. Like what you're talking about is such a powerful lesson for even what's going on in the world now. You know, like it's really, it's perspective and it's gratitude and it's resilience. It's all the things that we need in real life right now, you know? And we need to understand that yeah, yeah. not as bad as sometimes we are led to believe it is, you know? And I think I, I would just one more thing. Oh, I could sit here and talk for hours about it. And every time I do a podcast, I feel scattered because you're jumping around. You're trying to tell so many different stories and you're trying to get, you're trying to solve the world in an hour. It just doesn't work like that. You know, we could unpack gratitude, confidence and resilience and all these other moments in life and all the things that I believe in. But we don't have time for it. The one most important thing to understand is you have to have that place to store the tools. You just have to, you know, you've got to provide, you know, a little bit of clarity to the confusion. So, you know, dust off that mindset toolbox. That's what we need right now. Well said, my man. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on and dropping so much value. Truly, truly appreciate it, brother. And well done with what you're doing. Like it's inspiring. Sometimes our own stories, when we tell them, we don't think it's as big of a deal, but it it really is, man. What you're doing and sharing that is very valuable. So thank you for having the courage to do what you do and continue to do it because your message is powerful, brother. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, man. Cheers. Thanks, everybody. If you guys could please leave us a review on Apple, I really appreciate it. If you got value, share it with a friend, tag us on social media. And most importantly, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this. If you're a Spotify, Apple person, or if you're on YouTube, please head over to YouTube and subscribe there. It's really, really greatly appreciated. You guys have an amazing day. We will catch you next time.